what's up everybody? Welcome to the Hot Shot Wake Up. This is your Friday show, the weekly wildfire update. As always, we have a ton of things that we need to cover today. We have a full operational update of all the incidents going on around the world and in the United States. Europe has been busy again. There's kind of a lull right now in some areas in the United States and Canada is seen Wildfire activity in Alberta and in British Columbia, but they as well have seen some reduction in activity over the last week. We're going to talk about NASA's new investment in a drone company that is looking to provide real-time analysis and tracking systems of resources on the ground. We'll get into the details of that. And also, there was a really good article put out in Montana about all of the coal seam fires that they have. When I had been in Montana for a while, I did go to some coal seam fires. It's an interesting kind of dynamic to a new type of fire that I hadn't really seen before. But this article they put out kind of talks about how these things need to be tracked and mapped And there isn't really funding for any of that stuff and kind of goes into the history of these things and how long they actually burn. But before we get into any of that, I'm sure a lot of folks have heard that there was a fatality that happened this week out in Oregon on the big swamp fire. And this was involving a hotshot crew out there, the Craig Hotshots. And though we don't have all of the details on what happened, the Willamette National Forest has put out a statement and the Sheriff's Department has put out a statement discussing kind of what happened when this tragedy occurred. This incident took place on Wednesday of this week and the Sheriff's Department had this to say about the incident. Shortly after 12.30 p.m., Douglas County Sheriff's Office dispatchers were notified of a firefighter's critical injuries and the Umpqua Valley Ambulance Reach Air Medical Services were dispatched to the scene. A firefighter from Michigan died Wednesday after being struck by a tree while helping battle the big swamp fire on the Willamette National Forest near Oak Ridge. Despite life-saving efforts by medics assigned to the fire, Colin Hagen, 27, succumbed to his injuries. Hagen's body was flown from the Tokatee airstrip to the Roseburg Regional Airport by the Reach helicopter. Firefighters from the BLM Forest Service, Roseburg Fire Department, and Douglas County Fire stood together to honor Colin Hagen as he was transferred to the care of a funeral service provider. They then provided an honor escort to the funeral home. As I was saying earlier, all of the details are not available for this tragedy. What we do know is that this was a tree strike. And for people who are in the industry, we know that this is a very, very real hazard basically every day as we hike to work and are at work in the timber. If you've been in the industry for a while, you're aware that we don't work in a safe environment. And that's the reality of the job, but this is not the news anybody ever wants to hear 
if you have time, I would suggest putting some thoughts out there and prayers for the family and everybody involved in this incident, the folks that were on the fire with them, the crew itself, and also the families are going through something they never expected would happen. The Wildland Firefighter Foundation was able to arrange travel for the family to make their way to Oregon, and I can't imagine what that is even like. As I always say at the closing of each of my podcasts, reach out to someone that you know in the wildland firefighter world. If you're in the industry, check up on folks and don't take for granted those relationships that you have. Before continuing on, I would like to just have a moment of silence for Colin Hagen of the Craig Hotshots and express the sorrow the entire wildfire community feels for your loss. This week, it does seem like there has been a slight lull in fire activity around the nation. The Pacific Northwest has seen an incredible amount of lightning at the later stages of this week. There is some light precip coming through the area. However, they did see a lot of new IA starts in that region. Right now, nationwide, we are currently at a Preparedness level three, there were 127 fires in the last 24 hours. Nine of those were large fires. There are 31 uncontained large fires in the nation. And when it comes to teams that are out, there are currently three type one teams and seven type two teams on fires around the nation. For the operational update, we'll start up in Northern California. They are at a PL3 or a preparedness level 3. They saw 19 new fires in the last 24 hours. They have had kind of a spat of fires. A couple of them went big. They've complexed some others. But right now, the top on the list out there is the McKinney Fire, which is on the Klamath National Forest. That fire is 60,389 acres. But they are making a ton of progress on containing this incident. It's 75% contained. And if your containment level is to that point, this thing is pretty much getting wrapped up. As I said, an incredible amount of work was put in to get to this point. There are 2,881 people on this fire. Hasn't been very active in the last few days. About a week ago, they got... A lot of precip over the fire and saw some flash flooding that caused all sorts of problems with resources on the incident. But it's getting to a point where this thing is basically wrangled. There is work still left to do, but that threat of extreme activity has lessened quite a bit on this incident. As of right now, the incident has cost $41.7 million 
and the cause of the McKinney fire is still under investigation. As we wrote about about a week ago on our Substack, NBC News from the Bay Area put out a report after obtaining radio communications and dispatch communications from the McKinney fire, and they kind of put some puzzle pieces together saying this may have been caused by some sort of power station right-of-way and that there was power lost to the community very soon before this fire took off and established itself. Fire investigators on the Klamath are still saying that they have not determined the cause and their investigation continues. Also in Northern California is the Six Rivers Lightning Complex. There was lightning that came through about a week ago, started 12 fires, I believe it was. They did extinguish some of those, but others got established and continue to burn. That complex is 12,375 acres. And it's burning in very, very rugged ground, if you know the area, kind of that happy camp area. And that makes it very, very difficult to move folks around and do any sort of direct line just because of the terrain that's there. So there's been some burn operations and they're doing what they can and putting resources that are available to them. Uh, As we spoke about, the McKinney fire kind of sucked up a lot of resources Then there was the Yeti fire, which we'll talk about, but it kind of left a resource drain in the area. They do have 1,410 people on the complex, and they're doing the best work that they can to contain these things. Currently, it was listed as 0% contained on the complex and a cost of $5.7 million. I think that will change here soon, unless they get unfavorable weather before they get a full box around these things, but it seems like those numbers should change quickly here in the coming days. There is still a ton of work that needs to be done on this complex. It's a logistical and operational chess game trying to manage all of these fires at the same time. There was also the burnover incident that happened earlier this week where two crew carriers were burned up on one of the fires in this complex. There was no one hurt or injured in all of that, but there was just the cost of equipment that was lost. And the start and IA status of these incidents, I'm sure, was a very stressful time because there was just so much going on all at once. Neighboring in Northern California, there is the Yeti Fire. This used to be the China 2, but now it's the Yeti Fire. This thing's basically getting wrapped up. It's 7,886 acres and 79% contained. They did some drone ignition operations and some burning to sure up their control lines. And so far, all of their lines have held. There's 694 people on this incident, and the current cost is $11.2 million. I'd like to shout out the catering company who has been catering this incident. A lot of folks have reached out and said that the Yeti food situation is actually pretty dang good. And so I thought I'd highlight that. We hear a lot about the bad food on fires, but there are some folks that are still crushing it when it comes to providing quality calories for the folks on the ground. Moving on, the Northwest area. 
like I said, they've had a lot of lightning come through. They're at a PL3. They had 32 new fires in the last 24 hours. And there's three teams in the region, type one and type two teams, managing fires in that area. Right now, the Cedar Creek Fire, which is in Oregon, it's on the Willamette National Forest. That's 3,861 acres and currently listed at 0% contained. The Pacific Northwest Team 2 is managing that incident, and there are 573 people there. It's in a very remote area of the forest. It's not a managed fire, but they're kind of just letting it do its own thing. Obviously, there's some point protection and ensuring that this thing doesn't run in the direction of any communities. But right now, they're developing primary and secondary control lines for this incident. Crews and equipment are improving existing roads in the forest in case they do need to burn or hold it in that area. But it seems like this fire is behaving in a beneficial way for the forest. This is a lightning-caused fire. And like I said, it's not a managed fire, but it's not a frantic management style or operation to try to just slam this thing closed and we're going to go direct and hammer this thing out. It's They're doing a good job letting it be beneficial, but at the same time protecting any neighboring communities. Right now, that fire's current cost $4.6 million. Also in the Northwest, there's the Windigo Fire. That's on the Umpqua National Forest. Northwest Team 6 is managing that fire. Right now, 1,008 acres and 25% contained. There's 611 people on that incident. They did report that they're seeing good relative humidity recovery through the night, and that has slowed activity significantly on that fire. They are saying the fire is still moving around, but it's inside of their indirect control lines, and it seems like the plan that they have put in place so far is working just fine. The current cost of that fire is $6.3 million. There's been a couple fires in Washington. They had the Vantage Highway fire, the Cow Canyon fire. There was the Williams Lake fire. All of those are getting wrapped up. You're seeing containment levels go up very quickly over the last couple days. And it seems like there's going to be a downsizing on those fires. All of that being said, the Northwest is expected to get more lightning. So even though we are in kind of a lull phase compared to what the activity was like just a couple weeks ago, watch that area for new activity and maybe a place where resources will start going. Moving across the country to the Northern Rockies, they had six new fires in the last 24 hours. They're at a PL3. Still at the top of their list is this Elmo fire in the Flathead area next to Flathead Lake. That fire is listed at 21,349 acres, and it's 66% contained. Again, this is another fire that got very big. There was evacuations, extreme fire behavior, but they put a lot of aviation, a lot of hotshot crews were brought there, and they're slamming out work to the point to where they're starting to get a good handle on this fire. Northern Rockies Team 7 is managing this fire. Another fire where people are saying that the catering has been unbelievable. So whoever's catering the Elmo fire sounds like keep it up. You're doing a good job. The firefighters are enjoying what you're providing them. There's still 524 people on this incident. 
They're still strengthening their containment lines with aviation. The hotshot crews are still out there working. But all in all, it's starting to wind down. The cause of this fire is still under investigation. So that's very curious. We'll see what the report comes out of that. But even after weeks of this fire, we are still waiting for an official cause of the Elmo fire. As of today, $12.6 million in cost. Also in the Flathead area of Montana is the Redhorn Fire. This is a managed fire. Montana and Idaho actually have a pretty substantial list of fires that are being managed for resource benefit and for fire use on the landscape. And this Redhorn Fire is one of them. 511 acres, 130 people. Sounds like indirect work and they're building fuel breaks around this thing. They are saying it's a lightning fire, 0% contained, and a cost of $1 million so far. The Weasel Fire, which is on the Canadian border on the Kootenai National Forest. Kootenai is also a managed fire. Lightheartedly, they basically just let this thing burn into Canada. There's no malintent or malice behind that. The winds were pushing it towards the Canadian border, kind of boxed it in on the U.S. side, and it has burned into Canada, where now they are watching this fire. On the United States side, this has been determined that the objectives going forward is that we're just going to manage this fire. We're a lot of resources on it, but it has been reduced to 39 people. And basically now it's point protection, improving some prep work on some roads. And as of right now, the price tag is at $1 million. The Clover Fire, which is on the Beaverhead Deer Lodge Forest, is another managed fire up in Montana. 1,101 acres. And this has been burning for a while. There were some shot crews that kind of rotated in and out of this thing. Control lines were built. Some burning was done. They are saying they will continue to put fire on the ground if advantageous, if the weather agrees with that plan. They still have some opportunities where they can burn a little bit. There's 78 people on that fire reported as minimal activity in the last couple days. And the price tag on that managed fire is $1.8 million. Lastly, in that region is the Hog Trough Fire. That's on the Bitterroot National Forest. Kind of seems like a managed fire, but they're not saying it is. It's 824 acres. There's a lot of people. There's 524 people on this incident. A cost of $6.7 million. They are to the point on this incident now, though, where they are chipping. Obviously, you don't need 524 people to chip, but they are improving some lines in other areas and just kind of seeing if this fire wants to stay inside of the box that they have. So far, containment lines are holding. Checking up on the Great Basin, they're at a PL2. They had 13 new fires in the last 24 hours. And the fire that we have heard about for a while now, the Moose Fire, is the number one fire in that region. Right now, Great Basin Team 1 is managing that fire. They're saying it's 74,953 acres, so this thing is getting big. By the end of it, I think it'll be over 100, unless they get some sort of significant precip anytime soon. They are listed as 21% contained. If you look at the fire maps, however, it's 
The north side that they're kind of just holding and monitoring now, the north side is what's contained. And then on the south side, they're building this large box to ensure that they have enough time and allow the fire to burn without their hand getting pushed too much. An incredible amount of prep work has gone into constructing these things, and they're using old fire breaks from previous years that just needed to be cleaned up a little bit and incorporated those into their plans as well. The fire is still making occasional runs. You'll see a column, you know, every day, every other day. It's still putting in work. It's still chunking up some ground. And as of today, the cost is $35.6 million. Right now, it's looking like the Moose Fire will have people on it until the snow comes. It's just one of those fires where it's like, yeah, this is going to be going until the end of the year. So don't be surprised if you see September rolls, maybe even an October roll from fire crews heading up to Sam and Chalice to work on the Moose Fire. Southern Idaho near Pocatello had the Ross Fork Fire This was a very fast-moving grass and sagebrush fire. It went 5,000 acres in an operational shift. They evacuated some nearby communities, but as the sun went down, this thing kind of cooled out as the morning came. And currently, there's 69 people on that fire and a cost of $150,000. When it comes to managed fires in this region, in Idaho, there's the Norton Fire, the Wood Tick Fire, There's some fire called the Dismal Fire, which you don't want to go to the Dismal Fire, but they're managing all of those fires. They're all up in Idaho. The wood tick is still getting a little bit bigger. It's almost 6,000 acres at this point in time, and it's a wilderness fire that just kind of keeps chunking away. I think the wood tick will have people on it, or at least some sort of maybe wildfire module and a helicopter assigned to it for quite some time. All of those managed fires together are about $3 million in cost so far. Down in the Rocky Mountain area, they're at a PL2. They had 11 new fires in the last 24 hours. The Fish Fire and the Sugarloaf Fire, both in Wyoming, are basically winding down. They're not 100% contained or anything like that, but it's at a point now where any additional growth to these things isn't really expected. And fire behavior has significantly decreased on both of these incidents. The Fish Fire still has 81 people on it and a cost of $5.4 million. Grand Junction, Colorado had a bunch of new starts just today. Mostly small IAs that they're catching. One of them, they have ordered some seats. There's a Type 2 helicopter that's been ordered. But again, this is all happening today and not a lot of new information is out yet for these fires down in Grand Junction. Southern California has been kind of quiet. They're at a PL2. A lot of IAs, but it seems like they're catching them small. Just a couple weeks ago, they were getting bigger than what they are right now. It's kind of strange to see this lull in what usually is the height of fire season in mid-August. But right now, Southern California, not a lot to report. The Southern area, which is Texas... Louisiana, Oklahoma, those states down there, they're still popping fires. Texas is still seeing IAs and fires pop off. Again, they are catching them small now at this point in time. North Carolina had a 1,000-acre fire near Holly Ridge. 
this was a fast-moving brush fire and quite a large fire for North Carolina this time of year. Alaska, there's still 27 active managed fires listed up in Alaska. Not a lot of resources are being committed to these fires, but they are still open and on the books. They're being monitored mostly by air, and they're being allowed to burn. The Clear Fire has closed its doors. They closed the camp on that one. This was the fire that was near the Space Force facility in Anderson, Alaska. Very extreme fire activity was witnessed on this incident, but they're at a point now where they are closing down shop up there. Internationally, France this week has seen some pretty extreme fire behavior. They had a 15,000-acre fire in southwest France. Very, very active fire behavior. Footage that came out of this is just basically a wall of fire pushing through the timber. A lot of wind driving this fire. And Europe is still seeing some warm and hot weather kind of linger in their area which, if there are starts, they seem to be going big. France has reported that a lot of the fires that they have been seeing have been arson or accidental human-caused fires. These haven't usually been natural-caused fires over there. Greece is also seeing some wildfires. The Thassos Island, don't know if that pronunciation is right, but they had a fire just today as well and are still seeing a fairly active wildfire season. Spain is still seeing active wildfire. There's some incredible footage coming out of that. And even Italy, as well, has seen some wildfires this week. Lastly, Canada, they are still getting fires in Alberta and British Columbia. However, weather hasn't been pushing their hand at all lately. That could change. But their larger fires, they are seeing some progress being gained on those, and a lot of resources have been committed to the incidents that they have up there. Again, the United States, we sent the weasel fire across the border, Adam, so apologies for that one, but hey, that's what fire does. It doesn't uh, respect international borders when there's wind on it and it's, and it's pushing. Internationally, it's kind of been busier than what has been taking place in the United States the last week. However, I do see southern Idaho starting to pick back up, especially with a drying trend that might be coming through the region here further out. And I don't want the lull that is going on to catch anybody off guard because we are still early in August and things dry out quick. We'll see if any new starts here through the weekend and into next week develop into anything major, and if we get any large incidents out of new starts, there are some thunderstorms still predicted for that Region 6 area, the Pacific Northwest, and Northern California, so we'll have to keep an eye to see if anything comes out of that. That's the operational update that we have for this week. I'd like to say thanks to our sponsors, which are our listeners and readers we are a 100% ad-free publication on the Substack and our podcasts. Everything that we do is supported from our paid subscribers on Substack. Just $6 a month is what the subscription costs, or $70 a year. And not only does that support 
our firefighter donations that we give out to firefighters in need and their families in need. You also get four additional podcasts a month, workouts, 100% of our article archives, and 100% of our articles when we put them out. So once again, thank you to all the paid Substack subscribers. Literally couldn't do it without you. And that supports everything we do here at the Hotshot Wake Up. And thank you once again for making all of this possible. I have traveled this year over all the United States, through the Alleghenies, the White Mountains, and the Catskills, the Rockies and the Bitterroot Mountains, Cascades, the Coast Range, and the Sierras. A good article was put out this week by the Montana Free Press where they took a look at the coal seam fires that have been going on in their state for decades and decades. If you don't know, a coal seam is a layer of coal that is pressed between two different layers of rock or sediment. And what happens is... They are close to the surface, to the ground, or they get exposed on the sides of cliffs when erosion happens. And this very receptive material, coal, coal burns, obviously, it's how we get a lot of our power around the world. If there is a lightning strike or a grass fire, these things can ignite that way and then burn underground for years and years. In 2021, just last year, the Richard Spring Fire, which was in Rosebud County, Montana, was started by a coal seam fire that surfaced from underground and burned over 170,000 acres. Last year, that was Montana's largest fire. So the Montana Free Press gets into it and says, we should have a way to map and track where all these coal seam fires are. When I worked in Montana, there were times where we would get a dispatch to a coal seam that was on fire, and we also had GPS points to previous reported coal seam fires, and occasionally we would just go to those GPS locations and check in on the fire to see if it had resurfaced, how much smoke was coming out of it, has it grown any? And when it comes to like mapping the growth of a coal seam fire, the way we did it was as the coal seam burns, that material disappears underneath the ground and then you get a collapse of the surface above these coal seams. So you walk the perimeter of what has collapsed and that is kind of our rough estimate of how big these underground coal seam fires are. Not the most accurate way to do it, I'm sure, but they're trying to get better at it and they're trying to have a database available for resources in multiple counties to track these things and better understand how these are burning. From the article, it kind of gives you a rundown. It says 
underground coal seam fires can burn unnoticed for years. Under the right conditions, the quiet burns can get out of hand and do widespread damage as happened in the Richards Spring Fire. 51 fires in Montana last year were attributed to coal seams. This was the highest number reported in the last decade. They do believe that a lot more happened, but ranchers will see a fire on their property and they will just take their tender, their water tender truck that they keep on the ranch. They'll go extinguish it and it won't even get reported. And so those numbers aren't counted. So it's assumed that it was probably more than 51 last year that were caused by these coal seams. When it comes to trying to map these things, there's an individual by the name of Corey Shagas. He's the fire chief warden and DES coordinator for Custer County, Montana, and was involved in the initial response for the Richards Spring Fire. The goal of Shagas is to collect data, like location and even the depth of these coal seams, to indicate which ones might need special attention when wildfire conditions worsen throughout the year. They do have a website that is a self-reporting option, where if you find one and GPS it, you can go to their website and report on this. And there is even a company now that has started by some volunteer fire department folks in Baradis, Montana. And they started a company called CM Thermal and Fire, and it's a private coal seam tracking group. They put their own money into this, and basically they chartered an airplane to fly around and look for these things where they could map them using some thermal imaging and some sort of depth detecting technology where they can get a better and more accurate picture of what's actually going on underground. When I would go to these coal seam fires, we would pull up and basically we would get a pump going and any coal that was exposed and burning, you would just hose down until you basically tried to drown this thing out and there was no more smoke on the surface. Obviously, it's still burning underground, but when the visual effects of fire were diminished on the surface, you would report back to dispatch what you did, you would give them the new acreage that you tracked, and then maybe you would check back in in a month or so. Or if someone drove by and said, hey, there's smoke coming out of that field again, we would go check it out. This isn't just a Montana thing. These happen in the Dakotas. They happen in different countries. There's a fire in Russia that has been burning for decades, and they think that it will probably burn for hundreds of years into the future. There's videos of this coal seam fire over in Russia and some drone footage where it's actively burning. It's very, very hot. You can see it from the surface, and it's just chugging away in a massive deposit of coal underneath the ground. If you actually want to put out a coal seam fire, you have to dig up this deposit, expose it all to the air, and then you just have to douse it with water until you drowned it, basically, and then take topsoil and cover the cold, wet mixture with topsoil to ensure that these things are no longer going to burn. A very costly and time-intensive operation. Ultimately, if you live in these areas, it's kind of just a way of life now at this point in time and will be into the future. But I am on board for maybe some additional funding, or maybe you 
move some funding around that's already available to have a couple aircraft missions and some thermal scanning missions to better identify and place on a map, even in a digital form, for folks in these areas as a quick resource where they can check up on it. Hey, someone in the local area calls in a fire. That sounds like maybe the location of a possible coal seam fire that we've seen before. Check the map, see if it's the same thing. And it's just better situational awareness and information that overall will help everybody in these areas. The most problematic thing with them is just when they surface, they can start the wildfire and then you have wildfires that can start where there was no lightning or no human activity and you can kind of be caught off guard because there's no initial indicators that there should be a fire there. And then you get the fires like you had last year where they went 210,000 acres when a coal seam surfaced. If you've never been on a coal seam fire, it's it's interesting. It's different, you know. They're not that exciting, but just geologically, it's fascinating that underneath your feet, it's burnt, it could be burning hundreds of acres, but you only actually see three acres of coal seam that's actually burning. But underneath the ground, it's a very, very large fire. We'll see if they get the funding for this. I would like to look at a coal seam map if it was made available just to see how many of them are out there and identified. I'm sure it's a lot more than what we know. And like I said, these things can just be started by a lightning strike. If there's some exposed material or if the lightning strike penetrates the ground, it's hot enough to where you ignite these minerals and material and then it can burn for two years and no one can even know it's there. But I think it's a great resource if they get it done and make it available to the public. I thought it was interesting. I hope you did as well. Have you ever been to a coal seam fire? What did you think? How did you and the resources that you were with go about combating that fire? Did you just mark it, call dispatch, and let it burn? What did you do? Did you spray water? Did you put, you can put dozer line around it, but it's going to burn underneath it. So it's just a very interesting puzzle to solve and a different type of fire that we're not normally seeing on an everyday basis. I have traveled this year over all the United States, through the Alleghenies, the White Mountains, and the Catskills, the Rockies and the Bitterroot Mountains, the Cascades, the Coast Range, and the Sierras. NASA has decided to put a fair amount of money and funding into a new drone company and drone project that is being proposed and developed specifically for wildland fire. A few months ago on a podcast, we talked about how NASA was making public statements saying, we're going to get into this arena, we are going to get into this industry, and we are going to provide funding for projects that can help out in the fight against wildfires. They have chosen SkyTL Improving Aviation. That's the name of this company. And they have put $900,000 into this project. Now, NASA doesn't necessarily make money from doing this. They don't get any sort of equity stake in the company. 
but it does provide NASA a direct doorway into this company where the company can use NASA resources to develop their programs, maybe even have access to satellites that NASA has, but it also allows NASA's people to see what this company is doing and what kind of technology they are developing. This company kind of has two avenues that they are exploring when it comes to drones and what can be done and what can be used with these platforms. One is tracking of fire columns where you throw a drone up, presumably high elevation drone, and they will give you live analysis and prediction models of where this current column is going to go, where the fire activity is going to go, and kind of predict what the next few hours or maybe even days can be with all of the instruments that they put on this platform. The other thing that they are developing is a track and trace system for all of the resources on the ground, and they will have the drone platform as the command and control of tracking all of the ground resources, the ground vehicles, where everybody is, put that on an interactive map, track the aviation resources, and basically, it's a wartime drone platform. In the battlefield, you put up drones and they could provide this information to you. Where are the battalions? Where are the special forces? Who's where? I want it on a digital screen that's interactive and I can have an in-system chat where we can communicate amongst all of ourselves that are being displayed on this interactive mapping system. They're calling this the first portable air traffic management system to combat wildfires and keep emergency responders and others safe. SkyTL, Improving Aviation, wants to use drones to collect atmospheric measurements on the canopy of the wildfire and provide a real-time fire spread prediction model. The company says that challenges right now is that there's not great communication between the drones and emergency responders due to limited service in remote areas and they don't have access to real-time data, and this company is trying to change all of that. The grants that they receive from NASA, this $900,000, it's dedicated to early-stage funding for research and development for these drone platforms. They do have the opportunity to receive an additional $3 million if this initial Phase 1 development seems promising. This company is partnering also with the College of Aviation, and Aeronautical University, where they're developing this software to provide emergency responders with a common situational awareness map of the position of all fire vehicles, all air and ground resources, manned and unmanned aerial platforms, any emergency responders on the ground, and enabling notification and message exchanges within this platform. Now, we have talked about in the past about these tracking systems that I believe are coming to the fire industry. They're being pushed very hard. Your boots on the ground and a lot of these operational folks that aren't on teams aren't super fond of having these tracking transponders, you know, carry them around. The BLM already has them on their vehicles. The Forest Service, I'm sure, will implement that on vehicles soon. 
teams want it because they want to be able to see where everybody is, but there could be some benefit to this. If you had a platform where you could directly communicate with your adjoining forces and provide with that message an aerial view of the column, the ridge that you guys are working on, and have all of this interactive information to be sent within the message that you've provided, I can see that as being a useful tool compared to, and I don't think we should ever get away from, obviously, radio communication, but if you're in the industry, you know, trying to paint a picture over the radio, some people are really good at it and some people aren't good at it. It's just the way it is. So to have another tool layered on where you can not only just send a picture of what you're talking about, but ensure that everybody understands that message might be a good step. Something that might be concerning out of this is becoming too heavily reliant on this new platform where we get away from our face-to-face conversations, our radio traffic that's essential, and people get mission-focused on these new systems to where it actually becomes a detriment to suppression and management tactics when in reality this was all put in place to help to improve all of that. These systems will be initially tested in Florida on prescribed fires, and once they feel like they've been adequately field tested, they will see if they are allowed by teams and incident management folks to implement this over wildfires. There'll be a testing phase for that. And this isn't the only system that's being tested. Out in California, I believe it was the Oak Fire, they did have an experimental tracking system that they handed out to all the medics. I was told that the system was three pounds. It wasn't super heavy, but it was a it was a block. You know, they gave you a block of technology that you stuffed in your pack. And then this relayed information to their centers and provided a real-time look of where all of the medics were on the fire at all times. The folks that told me that they were using this technology said it was a little clunky, but not that bad. You had to ensure it was charged every day. And they saw the benefits in it, but also could see where folks would be kind of annoyed by having this extra thing to drag around at all times. But now that NASA is getting into the game, you can expect that they will be asking for more funding. There will probably now be a wildfire budget requested for NASA. They're trying to build more satellites to put up. And we're at a point now where this technology and these new platforms will start being deployed on wildfires and folks will have to take the time to get up to speed with what functionality these things have and the benefits and even the kinks that need to be worked out. Fascinating stuff, though. I will hope to see some progress and maybe some reports coming out of these prescribed burns in Florida where they're using these things. I'd like to see NASA put out some sort of informative video after this all takes place where we can just get a quick down and dirty look at how it worked, tell me what didn't work, and just keep everybody updated on the progress of these systems if the plan is to start implementing all of this operationally on wildfires. Again, I want to ask, what do you guys think about that? I know there was the poll out and it was 
the majority of people didn't like this track and trace systems. The biggest concern was micromanagement, obviously. But what do you think? And if you're aviation, if you're air attack, helicopter pilots, tanker pilots, how do you feel about uh, drone platforms? Because we know the conversation of we can't have these drones flying over wildfires while there's actually manned aviation taking place. So that will be an interesting integration as well and something everybody will have to get used to. On a previous podcast, we discussed the nighttime flying operations and the night vision capabilities that some of these planes have now and helicopter tankers and how that's been kind of a slow rollout because folks are nervous to use that technology because we're just not used to flying at night. And there's concern of, well, if something goes wrong with this technology on my watch, it's just going to be a mess and people are going to be asking, why did you use it? And what were you thinking? And you get a slower rollout of the new technology. I'm curious where it all goes. There's going to be a lot of money going into this side of things here in the near future. And where there's a lot of money for projects, a lot of big hitters will end up showing up to the party. Let me know what you think in the comments. That's our show for today. Again, thank you to all of our paid Substack subscribers. If you want to support what we do here, the firefighter donations, a subscription gets you four more podcasts a month, all of our articles, the article archives, workouts. In the off-season, I'll provide different recipes for folks. And to do that, you just head to the Hotshot Wake Up on Substack, substack.com. Click on the subscribe button. It's $6 a month, $70 for a whole year, and that supports everything we do and allows us to be ad-free in everything that we put out. As always, check in on your homies, see how they're doing. It was a tough, tough week for a lot of people. So take the 30 seconds, the 90 seconds, send a loving message, make the call, see how they're doing. If you're on R&R, take that time to get a little extra rest. Get those good quality calories if you can. Stretch, hydrate, and remember when you get up, you got to get it done.